John chapter 7, 14 through 24. This morning we're going to talk about, share a couple points on Jesus' declaration to the Jews. Jesus' declarations, declaration to the Jews. We're going to have Jesus makes a bold move. Jesus gives, makes a bold teaching. Jesus gives a bold statement. And Jesus has and gives a bold rebuke. Bold move. What do you mean bold move? Well, it's a bold move because back in earlier in chapter 7 uh, and you know, all the way back in 6 and then 5, uh, the Jews were set out to kill Jesus. And we just talked about it last week how his brother said, you know what, Jesus, uh, in light of all that's going on, and we saw all these disciples just turn around and leave you, uh, it's a time of the Feast of the Tabernacles. There's going to be a lot of people there. And that would be a great opportunity because they, his brothers, didn't even believe he was who he says he was, who is the Son of God. They said, why don't, we, uh, why don't you just go back up there, come with us to the city, and uh, back to Judea, and we'll, you'll gain some of the popularity that you lost because all these people are going to be there. This is a perfect opportunity for you to seize back what you lost. And so Jesus sends them on, but he stays. But by the time we get to verse 14, it says that it's about the, the middle of the feast. The feast lasted eight or a whole week, seven days. So whether it was day three or day four, but about midway into this festival, and it was a joyful, exciting time. They did not act like sometimes we do. We're sad to be there. They were celebrating all that was about the Feast of the Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths about God's provision for them as they were out in the wilderness and how God brought them through and how God provided for them in terms of food and then water and all that. It was a great time. It was sort of be like what we do with the Super Bowl. I mean, people were out, people make preparations way before just because it's this one day of the year. We're going to celebrate because this is the biggest event that's happening on the calendar in our country. That's how that was. This is, a, this is a big deal. Jesus, about midway, gets to this feast, knowing that some of the people that were there wanted to kill him. I find it, you know, when I read, when, I don't know about you, but when I read things in the Bible, my mind starts thinking. I'm thinking, this is a bold move for Jesus to know that people want to kill him. And yet, in verse 14, he says, in the middle of the feast, Jesus goes up. And where does he go? He goes into the temple. The very place where these people are is where he's at. In the tent of the temple, and he begins teaching. Now, if you don't want to call attention to yourself, you wouldn't be in the temple teaching. I mean, you might be on the outside looking in. You might be in the foyer, like outside of the, the, the doors here at the church. But if you, don't, if you don't want to be seen, you'll be in it over the fellowship hall or over the, uh, the hallway over here. But Jesus makes it known. He comes right in smack dab into the middle where all these people are. And not only does he walk into there, but he's also teaching. It's a bold move. I mean, that's somebody that's got... Gumption. Why, 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 why would Jesus do that? Because if you pay attention to the Gospels and you read through the Gospels, whenever man wanted to lay hands on Jesus, he could not do it because Jesus would always say this phrase, it is not yet my time. In all due time, 
They were going to be able to do to Jesus what they wanted to do. But here's Jesus right in the middle, and what is he doing? He's teaching. And, and, and the response of, of the people here are the Jews marveled. They're astonished. They're amazed. They're just like, whoa, what's going on here? It says the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it? Hey, wait a minute. How can or how is it this man has learning? This man has, you know, some type of, he's been somewhere to where he can speak like this. How does it mean, how is it that he teaches and has, has no learning? And what else does it say? Not only does he have not learning, but where has he been that he got all this education? They're marveling at his learning and they're marveling because they say he's never studied. Wait a minute. Do they know who he is? Do they understand who, who is the one who's doing the teaching? I mean, they're, they're marveling at all this because they didn't understand who he is. The whole purpose of John, back again, you'll hear me say it over and over, the whole purpose of John is that John writes this that we might know that Jesus is who? The Son of God. The word that he was teaching, that was him. You say, well, wait a minute, Pastor, how do you know that? Well, let me just bring back to your remembrance John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him it was not anything made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It goes on right down through there. But in the beginning was who? The Word. Jesus is the Word. He is the one that wrote the Word. He is the embodiment of the Word. And they're standing there going, oh, my gosh. How is it he can stand here when he has no learning and he has never studied? He doesn't have to study. He's it. Now, unlike us, students, my high school, grade school, college crowd, and those of you who may be in school, you can't pull that off. You have to study. God does not work in an empty vacuum. I know God works miracles, but if you have not studied for a test, do not pray the prayer, Lord, I pray that when I go in here, you'll give me the right answers. <laughs> That's not how God operates. He requires of us to put some things into it. Now, I will say this. You do right by studying, and guess what? There may be some questions you don't know, and, and what God can do is bless you with the right answer based on what you put into it. But don't go in there as an empty vacuum with nothing in there and expect the miracle of God that you can pull off an A. That's not right. That's not even biblical. That's not even Christ-like. You have to study so that you might prepare and then ask the Lord to bring back to your remembrance some things you might forgot, and he will do that. Amen? But they're talking Jesus. Why? Because in, in Matthew, I believe it's Matthew 7, 28 and 29, they were, they were amazed because he taught as one who had authority. He wasn't just your ordinary teacher. When he stood up and was teaching, people listened. And the intent, the power of his words, what he was saying, was so much so that people were like, man, this guy knows what he's talking about. Amen? I don't know if you've ever been in school or you've ever been to a place. Very, I'm reading uh, some stuff about... Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers. Let me tell you, at the age of 19, 
He was pastoring a church of 200, I think 200, 250 people. At the age of 20, he was pastoring a church of 6,000 people. The Metropolitan Tabernacle over in London, England, over in that area. It's estimated that every time that he preached, at every service that he ever preached, a minimum of 6,000 to 10,000 people heard him preach. Every Sunday, every Sunday night, whenever he took the pulpit, 6,000 to 10,000 people came to hear him preach the Word of God. It's estimated that in his lifetime, he may have preached before there was a Facebook and the Internet and all this other stuff. Over 250 million people possibly would have heard him preach the very Word of God. They said he had a voice that was just like velvet. No sound system, no microphone to help him out. He was able to preach to thousands, and the person all the way in the back could hear him preach. Did he have his struggles? Did he have his battles? Yes. Very, he, was, he was saved in the Methodist church, but he came out of the Methodist because he said, you know what? I believe in baptism of the believer. And therefore, he left the Methodist to go to become a Baptist. He stood for other various things when everybody in the church and everybody that was around him did not believe in the atonement of Jesus Christ. What does that mean for those of you who don't know? That means that they started believing that Jesus' own shed blood was the reason for our salvation. There were people that were teaching at his time, and there are people that teach that today in our circles. I mean, there are ministers and preachers and churches that do not believe in the atonement, don't believe in the justification, don't believe in sanctification. But he stood for what he knew was right because of the Word of God. And in his last years, they actually sanctioned him and took away from him the privilege of being able to preach because they said he was teaching and preaching heresy. But he wasn't teaching preaching and teaching heresy. He was teaching the Word of God. That's what Jesus is doing. He's standing declaring the Word of God. And what we need today is men and women. We need men in the pulpit today that will stand on the unadulterated Word of God when it's popular and when it's not popular, when people smile at you and when people don't smile, when people look at you, where is he getting this stuff? I don't, we've never heard this before. If it's from the Bible, if it's from the Word of God, stand there, as my pastor used to say, flat-footed, four-squared, and tell a dying world what thus saith the Lord. We need believers in Christ to tell the world the very word of God. Uncompromising, not no bending, no bowing, no burning. We just say this is what the word of God says. We're dealing with adjusted because of culture and time. Well, that's what we used to believe back in 1965 or 1985 or 1999. No, it's the same word. God's word does not change. What was good 2,000 years ago when he was talking to the religious folks then is the same word as good for us. And that's what Jesus is doing. And they thought, man, there's something different. I don't know if you've ever been in a place where somebody was either speaking or teaching, and you just thought, wow. I watched old clips. I love the clip of Martin Luther King at the memorial in Washington, D.C., because I'm watching the guys, the, the little state trooper on his left hand and his right hand, and when he is standing there and he's talking about, you know, his, he's right in the middle of his message, and, and, and I watch when he, when he wraps up, I watch that state trooper, and he can't help but smile because when, when Martin finished that last phrase, everybody was up at the power, the oratory of a man to be able to rise and sing. I mean, if, if you're a student of history, it's amazing at the times of great men that rose at spe- special times. I think of, uh, of Abraham Lincoln, 
who, when the nation was divided, we as a country was divided, north and the south, slave and other, when he wrote that address, the Gettysburg Address, man, if you read that, for the time in which he spoke that, under the circumstances that he was under, it's a great statement. It has some power behind it. And when he gave it, were the people like it? No, but he understood that we as a nation needed to come together, even though we were divided. Winston Churchill, when they were bombing England, and he told the nation in a, in a bunker with a radio blaring across the airwaves that our finest hour is yet to be. How do you say that when everything about what's going on is totally the opposite? When there's water over your head and you're saying, we're going to make it because God is able, and everybody around you goes, you are a nut. You're a fool. Guess what? That's what they do to Jesus. You say, how do you know that? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Because they asked him, they said his teaching was one with authority, and he also taught as one who had never learned. He says here, let me, let me, help, let me help you out. He says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. In other words, if whomever is speaking, if they're doing it on their own power, under their own strength, that's, they're doing it for their own glory. But if you have discernment, if the God in whomever you're talking, the God in me meets the God in you, and you say, well, you know what? I know he's not preaching for his own self. That's what Jesus means when he says he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. How? If you speak on your own authority, he seeks his own glory. If the speaker, the man of God, or the woman of God, or the boy of God, or girl, is speaking to get known for themselves... That's a problem. But he also says, the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him. I'm an ambassador of the king. You are an ambassador. We have ambassadors in the United States. What does that mean to be an ambassador? When the president of the United States sends and sets up an embassy overseas, it represents the United States of America. Whether it be in Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, England, France, wherever. That piece of property that makes up the embassy represents and is, for all intended purposes, part of the United States of America. They send Marines over there to maintain and protect that piece of ground because as far as the president is concerned, those people that work and they are under him, and he says to the person, that's the ambassador, you don't say what you want to say, you say what I want you to say. Why? Because you represent me and the United States of America. That's the same thing God, through Christ, has done with us. When we speak, we don't represent ourselves. We represent our one who said it, who is our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why it's so important that let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable and pleasing unto you, O Lord. Why? Because when you speak, what you say, what you do, does not only reflect on you, it also reflects on our Savior. And guess what? Not only on our Savior, but also on the church. Because the, on, the dying world can, may not, cannot make the distinction.
between whether you are or whether you're not. That's why they say, you folks down there at the church. Well, you know what? It's not all you folks. It's only some of us folks. But they don't know that. They just put us all in the same barrel. And Jesus says, you will know when somebody's coming across in the right way because they're not seeking it for themselves. They're not trying to make a power grab. They're not asking. You know what? It's one thing, and it's a sad thing in our world today. And the reason why pastors and ministers have such a hard time is because of those who have misrepresented this position. They're all about money. Y'all, you guys got those jets, and you got those helicopters, and you got, you know, you always want more money, more money, more You know what? I ain't got no jet. I ain't flying around in no helicopter. No. There are more men of God who are working their butts off and doing whatever the Lord wants them to do for hardly anything because not because of so much of the love necessarily because of what they're getting out of it, but because of their commitment and love to the cause of Christ. And if you could and you can't, you could never pay for what the, what the, what the man of God has given to you. Put on the ability to have your mind being sound. You're not flying off and going off and doing thinking crazy things because you're under the power and authority of the Word of God. He says, That's how you know. Because he's not seeking his own glory, but the, the one who sent him. Who sent, who sent Jesus, his Father? Who sent me? The Lord. Who sends you? The Lord. So when you speak, you speak for the Lord. If it's all about you, people will know that. We had the bold move. He comes in. We have this bold teaching where he says, wait a minute, it's not about, it's not about, if, if a guy's really doing right, it's not about him. And then he makes this statement. The bold statement. He says, has not Moses given you the law? The answer was yes, he did give the law. Yet, guess what? Now he's speaking this in the temple with all the people who want to kill him. And he says, now you understand something, because these are Jewish people, they got it. Did not Moses give you the law? The answer for that would be, well, yes. We, Moses, the paradigm prophet, the guy that they would lift up as this, he is the, the prince of all prophets, is Moses. He brought us out. He led us through. He was God's man. They knew about Moses. He says, uh, but guess what? Yet none of you keeps the law. What? I mean, it's like, you know about Moses? Yeah, we know about Moses. Yet none of you don't keep the law. What do you mean? What are you talking about? Yeah, we do. He said, yet none of you keeps the law. And oh, by the way, not only do you not keep the law, why do you want to kill me? It takes a whole lot of power to look your enemies in the eye. And tell them, oh, you think you follow the word of God? The answer would be, oh, yeah, we know the Bible. Then why do you want to kill me? Oh, whoa, whoa. I mean, that would be, that would be bold. You can't do that on your own. You can only do that. And he can only do that in the power of the Lord and Savior, Jesus, of his Father in heaven. That's why our Lord and Savior addresses him that way. He, he had a bold move. He had a bold teaching. And now he makes his bold. You want to kill me. He said, and the reason why you want to kill me is this. In John chapter 5, I healed a guy on the Sabbath day. Yo, wait a minute. We've done, done a whole lot of other things since then. And you still are harping on what happened in John chapter 5 because I healed a man on the Sabbath? 
Are you kidding me? We do it all the time. Solomon said, ain't nothing new under the sun. It's always a hold on to stuff that we need to let go. Stuff that happened a week, 10 weeks, a year, five years, 20 years, 30 years, whatever it is, we still, well, I remember when. They couldn't get over it to the point that what he did, he addresses them because he's going to give them in a moment a strong rebuke. He says, you want to kill me. And the only reason why is, he says, I did one work. I did one miracle. That one thing that I've done is why you cannot get over it. You, you are mar- you marveled, you're astonished, you're amazed. He says, Moses gave what? Moses gave you circumcision. Yes, he did. Now, that wasn't from Moses. It comes from your father. This is something that was set down by the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This goes back to all that. They, 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 this is where you, this is where you, and, and guess what? They not only took what the law said, they amplified it by adding other things to it. And what did they add to it? One of the things they add to the law about circumcision was, the circumcision, I think it's in Deuteronomy, they have to, you have to be, a male person had to be circumcised on the eighth day. Precisely. Born on Monday, whatever the eighth day would be, that would fall on Monday, or was that, that Tuesday? Eighth day, baptized, or circumcised. Every eighth day. If that's when it happened, the eighth day, you got to circumcise. That's what they said because of the law, and that's what they added to it. Wow, interesting, Jesus says. He says, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. So let me understand, this is what Jesus said. Let me understand something. You're mad at me because I healed a man his whole body. On the Sabbath day and on the eighth day, if it falls on a Sabbath, you will circumcise that male person. Don't get it. He says, uh, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath? And if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken? You do it because you don't want to break the law. Ain't because you're doing it because of the rightfulness. You do it because of the legalistic part of it. Eighth day, if it falls on the Sabbath, we have to circumcise. No matter who it is or what time. Even though the Sabbath was to keep it holy, even though all the things about the Sabbath day, they broke it because they thought the circumcision was more important. And now that Jesus says, and yet you're angry with me because on the Sabbath, I made a man's whole body well. Again, I say, are you kidding me? I mean, I'm just using the vernacular that Jesus probably was thinking. Seriously, that's what I probably would say. Seriously, you have the asinine thought that you're going to ride on me? You want to kill me because of what I did by healing a man? Wow. I was telling Sheila, we got back yesterday from their trip. I told her, I said, uh, I was listening to Alistair Begg. And a few years ago, he was in England, and uh, he was doing a tent revival, him and another pastor, and he said, thousands of people were packing this huge tent, there's people, you know, and it was hot. I mean, it was burnt, he said, we couldn't breathe in it, or so many people, the air wasn't circulating. And so, the other pastor that was with him asked the guy that was over this thing, says, can I ask a favor? Can I ask something? And he said, sure. 
He said, would you, be, would you object if, I took off my, if we took off our jackets? Because it's so daggone hot in here. I mean, we're sweating and we can't hardly breathe. And the guy says, well, I tell you what, let me go talk to the other people and we'll get back with you on that. Now, if you know anything about Alistair, he is not so much one that likes to follow, I mean, the, the letters of the law. He, he's kind of a free, I mean, he, he kind of likes to go with the flow. He's like I am today. You know, for some people, the fact that I didn't have a tie on you know, or a suit on, people get offended. If you're offended, I'm sorry. Come to me. Talk to me. And if my not wearing a tie offends you that much, then I'll put a tie back on. Okay? But I'll be free. I'll, be, I'll do like Paul said. You're the weaker brother or sister. For that, I will forgive, forgo my rights not to wear a tie because I'm no more a pastor or preacher if I wear a tie and if I don't wear a tie. But for those that it's a stumbling block, I am willing to do that. That's basically what Jesus says. He says, you break the Sabbath all the time on the eighth day. And here he makes and gives the bold rebuke. He says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. You're judging on the outward. You're discerning from the outward. And yet you miss the very point because you're not judging or you're not using discernment with that which is right. He's not saying that they couldn't, baptize, or they couldn't circumcise on the eighth day. That was not his point. And his point also was not that he had the right to heal a man whole. His thing is when you look at what God wants to do, which of the two things weigh more, more heavily upon what is right is that we want to take care of the whole man, not just part of the man. And if, you're, if you are a farmer and your ox is in the ditch and it happens to be the Sabbath day, common sense is you get your ox out of the ditch because you need the ox because Monday morning you get to go out into the field. You don't, in other words, you don't say, well, the ox stay out there because it's a Sabbath day. There are certain times, certain jobs, certain occupations that people have to work. We don't celebrate the, Lord, or the Sabbath day. We celebrate the Lord's day. And the Lord's Day for us is like the Old Testament Sabbath. We don't do that well in the New Testament church today. You know how I know that? Because we only give God three or four hours on a Sunday, and God forbid we say there's anything going on Sunday evening or Sunday afternoon because we all have a heart attack. But there was a time. There was a time, and he also talked about this. Alistair asked these ministers, let me ask you a question. How many of you grew up in a time when... The Lord's day was that we gave the Lord the whole day. Catch what I'm saying. Listen to what I'm telling us. You and I are obligated to give the Lord the whole day. We don't do that. We don't want to do that. I've talked to pastors across this country and in this state and over a few cities and a few blocks away from here. And what I hear from them, I'm not happy with because I'm also part of the problem. I'm like, wait a minute. Well, we, you know what? Uh, we tried Sunday evenings, and people just don't want to come back. People won't come back. People don't. No, no. It's just a waste of time and waste of money and waste of energy, waste of, waste of effort. You know what I say to that? Shame on us. Because I can, how many grew up in a time when Sunday was the whole day? In fact, it was, you had certain clothes that you had to wear that they called Sunday go-to-meeting clothes. 
Now, for some of us who don't know about that, there were some of us culturally that we only had certain clothes that we could only wear. We didn't have a closet full of clothes we could pick out, whatever. Our mama and our daddy worked so hard, they said, you see these shoes? You see those pair of pants? You see that shirt? You see that dress? You only wear that on Sunday. That's it. We ain't, you ain't wearing that to school. You don't wear that to the party. You only, so when we get ready to go to church, that's when you wear that. And you stay dressed the whole day. You don't do like I'm going to do when I go home in a few minutes. I'm going to put on my shorts, my little two sock, my little ankle socks, my nice polo or shirt, and baby, we, we done for the day. Unless somebody calls me and says they need me. Otherwise, I'm at home. That's sad. I think what has happened to the church today is that we made our salvation minimal. We become minimalist. Pastor, please don't ask us to come back on Sunday night. Please don't. We got, we're used to not coming back. We, 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 we don't want to come back. You know, we don't really, really, really you know, we got church anniversary, and Pastor Bridget, and that's at 3 o'clock. Pastor, you just know, once I leave, I don't, I don't want to come back. I don't want to, I don't want to come back. I know it's important, and I know I should be there to support you and, and, and Pastor Bell, and we as members, we could support each other. But in my heart, once I get home, and do you not know that on that Sunday afternoon, the, I don't know if they play or not, the Pittsburgh Steelers are playing the Cincinnati Bengals? Come on! Can we not adjust, can we not adjust the church schedule? All right, the Vikings are playing the Packers! Oh my God, let's see, 1 o'clock. <laughs> See how easy it is for us? Oh, Pastor, wait a minute. That's, what's, was that the second? Is that the second? Sunday the second? Oh, Pastor, I gotta, we, we didn't plan a trip out of town. We didn't plan to go shopping that day. And yet that same God, that same God that we say that we don't want to sacrifice for, sacrifice for us. How did he do it? He died on the cross. So that you have, you know, whether you agree or disagree with Colin Kaepernick, I get what he's trying to do. And I say he has the right to do what he does based upon what other men and women, other men and women have done the sacrifice of their life and of themselves for him to have the right to say that he's going to bow a knee at the national anthem. I get what he's saying. I give him the right to do that. You know why I give him the right to do that? Because the same right he has to take a knee during, oh, say, can you see? It's the same right that I had to stand up here this morning and talk about Jesus Christ. See, when you start limiting and denying certain freedoms, you got to be very careful because we live in a land where we're right now able to talk about Jesus Christ and his saving faith and grace that he gives to us. But if we tell him, you can't do that because I don't like it, and you're slamming the United States, then somebody can come in here and say, I don't like what you're saying about me, and therefore you don't have the right to say it. My father, I'm a proud military brat. Nobody loves this country more than I do. But make no mistake, we got a lot of problems in this country. Amen? I agree. America is the greatest place. I don't see any of us packing up our bags and wanting to go somewhere else. With all the problems, with all the racism, with all the prejudice that's in this land, I still will live and be an American. I ain't planning to go to France or England or wherever. I'm staying my behind right here in Wilmington, Ohio, of the good old United States of America. 
the land of the free and the home of the brave. That's where I'm staying. I was sharing, I'll close on this. I was sharing with some pastors a couple of weeks ago. We were sitting at a table. And uh, this thing about black lives matter. And here's what I said. I said, they said, help me understand this. I said, I'll do my best. I said, I don't know if I can do it, but shoot. I said, I'm watching. I said, Here, here's where I'm at. I'm watching the Southern Baptist Convention in particular, trying to reach out to the black or African-American church and say, because of our past sins and transgressions, we want to come together and, and, and be one church. We admit we made some mistakes. We were on the wrong side of the slavery issue and all that. And that's to be commended. I said, great, wonderful. I said, here's what you need to understand. Brother Art Brooks, I talked about you. I said, the reason why, I said, the, the people who say black lives matter are not saying that all lives don't matter. Okay? Because all lives do matter. We learned that in Sunday school. Every life has what? Value. Why? Because they're all God's creatures. We're creating the image of God. I said, that's not what they're saying. What they're trying to do is draw attention to the fact that in this country, right now, the group that is being shot and killed for no other reason 99.5% of the time is because of this. They're black. Okay, how you cut it? They're not shooting white men. They're not shooting uh, Asian men. They're not shooting Mexican men. They're not, all these other groups are not being killed. And, and somebody says, well, you don't know. They might be doing something. Call no, 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 no. That's the part of racism. I don't, care where, I don't care where you come from. There is no other group that faces the racism that, number one, particularly, a black man faces. I can walk into a building and walk into a space and people look at me for no other reason. And look at me like, mm, what's he want? Where's he going? Because I'm a black man. I'm going to say something. Y'all might get mad at me, but, but I'm, I'm saying this in love. If you are married to a white, black, whatever, when you're not with your black other mate, they don't know who you are. You blend in. It's not until the children or the husband go, hey, baby, do you... And people, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> they look at you like, oh. Black men are shot, are killed because of the perception that we're dangerous. Police officer pulls up. Their first inclination is they suspect you because of all the other things that you're a danger to them. And I've listened to what a lot of these officers said. They said they felt their life was threatened. Well, let me understand something. The guy that was walking down the streets of Chicago with a knife in his hand, yes, he was acting crazy and doing, but he's walking around in the middle of Chicago Avenue, what's that, the, the, the Magnificent Mile, and he's got a knife to shoot him 60-plus sometimes because you felt threatened by a guy with a knife. Got 20 or 30 officers and one little lowly, and he was a small guy, 
well, the lonely guy with a knife. And you shoot him 60 plus times. A guy in Cincinnati had a brick, a brick on his front porch. The police came. Did you hear what I said he had? What did he have? A brick. He has a brick. They call the police, not just one or two, a whole squad of them come. He's a little guy. He's a man with a brick. What does he have? A brick. You're going to tell me. They shot and killed him. Again, pumped him full of bullets 40-some times. And I thought to myself, I talked to Scott. He's a pol- he was in the law enforcement dealing with the parks and all that. I said, help me to understand something. A man, <laughs> I'm like, Jesus, are you kidding me? A man with a brick, is that a big of a danger? If he throws it and misses, he's done. Brighten the little shield, the little plastic shield, and go, all right, go ahead, throw your brick. What's he going to do? You can't talk to him and say, sir, you're outnumbered. You need to put the brick. I mean, can we not talk about this? That's why they said Black Lives Matter, to draw attention. Colin Kaepernick's whole thing is he wants us to, as a nation, as a group of people, to be sensitive to those that are without. And I understand, and I get it. I'm not claiming we need to go back in slavery. But you need to, well, so why do you need to understand this? That stuff is real for us. I can't go to every church in this community and feel welcomed in there. Even in 2016. Because they will look at me and wonder what I'm doing. What do I want? Why is he here? You need to go over there with those people. I know I'm right because I've already heard it in the community. I say something I don't know. I'm telling you what I do know. So I share with these pastors this. I said, until, I said, here's the whole thing in a nutshell. Jesus, they want to kill him for doing that which is right. We live in a world today. You and I as believers in Jesus Christ have to understand something. The right that we have comes from the Bible. But make no mistake, people don't want to know the truth. They really don't. And they will smile in your face and they'll say they'll be your friends, but just cross that line and they'll show you exactly where you belong. You're no longer their friend. Stand up for that which is right. Not because you're trying to get a holy hobby horse, but because it's the very word of God. Marriage is between one man, one woman, created in the image of God. Amen? That's it. No other combination can you get around with. It's one man, one woman, for one lifetime, created by God in his image. You got to put all that in there because now we don't know who we are. That's it. It's not a popular view. People want you to accept and tolerate and go along with everything. That's what it is. And I look at, I look at us as church, the gospel message, and this is what Spurgeon got in trouble for, His whole answer to all the problems of man is the gospel. There is no color in the gospel. Or let me put it this way. There should be no color. Because where there's man, there's always a tendency to draw color. I don't care who you are, where you come from, rich, poor, black, white, red, yellow, blue, green, purple, whatever. These doors are always going to be open. You know why? Because Jesus said, whosoever will, let him come. Amen? That's who we are. 
He opened the door for us. He died for each one of us here. And you know what? We have the responsibility to stand, to live, and to serve. To obey Christ, to have the love of Christ, and to know Christ, and not to do it is sin on our part. I trust the Lord will burn upon our hearts the fact that we need to embrace. And as the word that I, I, I kind of like right now is the word intentional. We need to be intentional in our service to him. He died for us. He bought our salvation. He purchased us with the very thing that was the most precious to his father, his own blood. And how you and I say thankful, thank you to him, is in our obedience to his word, his will, and his way. That is, in simplicity, the gospel message. And that's what we need to tell our friends, our neighbors, our loved ones. That your greatest need in your life is not more hours on the day so you can make more money. Your greatest need is not the car that you think you need. Your greatest need is not that new house that you want to have. Your greatest need is not that vacation that you always have dreamed of. Your greatest need, if you don't know Jesus, is to know him and the power of his resurrection. Because if you come to know him, he can take care of all these. He said it. He will take care of what? All these other things. And that's all those things are, things. If you don't know Jesus today, this is your opportunity to get right with God. I say, Lord, you know what? I'm living my, I live my life for the word I, but I want to live the word, live through the word for you. Father, thank you for your word.